Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is John Ramo, a host on New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Today, it is my pleasure to be speaking with Suzanne Marchand, board professor of history at Louisiana State University. Professor Marchand requires little introduction. In her monographs, Down from Olympus, Archaeology and Philhellenism in Germany, 1750-1970, with Princeton University Press, and German Orientalism in the Age of Empire, Religion, Race, and Scholarship, with Cambridge University Press, as well as throughout textbooks, edited volumes, and several articles that have become standard in the field. Professor Marchand explores the cultural and intellectual histories of Central Europe, as well as the histories of art and scholarship. Her research drills down to the practices of Oriental philology, explores the ways in which German scholars inherited and constructed antiquity, and traces the Austrian origins of non-Western art history, among other subjects. She then zooms out to contextualize these episodes in the whole of European and even world history. Few scholars so persuasively range from the early modern period through the 19th century to the advent of World War II, while, at the same time, situating the 19th century at the heart of the questions we ask ourselves today as professional historians. I hope you enjoy our interview. So, Professor Marchand, just a general question of uh, background. What led to your becoming a historian, and more precisely, a historian of Germany and Central Europe in particular? Were there any challenges, as you hinted in this book in particular, of coming to business history? Thank you, John. It's a delight to be able to talk about this book and, um, and my career. I, um, I was inclined to be a literature scholar in college. I was in love with Russian literature, and I still am. Uh, I also loved the arts. Uh, and I found the social sciences fascinating. And one of the things that was attractive to me about intellectual history was that it allowed me to be a jack of all trades and combine many of those things together to put them into my teaching as well as into my research. So history was attractive to me, both because it gave a chronological and contextual framework to all those things, and also because it allowed me to kind of indulge my passions in many different fields. Um, Austrian and German histories attracted me from early on, perhaps because it seemed very hard and also um, very rich. And of course, at the time I was studying and still today, we're always interested in and attracted by the story of Germany's great rise in cultural and political power and then its self-destruction and its, um, its terrible uh, uncivilized um, actions in the 20th century. So all of those things um, led me into the field generally. I came to business history uh, accidentally in many respects. I, um, I took a walk through the Habsburg silver cabinet um, one year when I was in Vienna and I discovered there just a multitude of styles of tableware that I hadn't realized existed. And I thought I might be able to do some sort of counting of styles, classical, oriental, um, European, by looking at the, um, at the porcelain industry 
and in that way get beyond what I had done before in the history of scholarship with respect to those different fields, classicism and Orientalism. It didn't exactly turn out that way, but I found a wholly different story and one whose uh, economic aspects intrigued me more and more. And it's a field that the longer I spent uh, in it, the more I found that um, there was room for stretching my wings and for trying new creative um, mixtures of, um, of disciplines. I still think today that there is a tremendous amount of unstudied consumer history and economic history in the German lands that could very profitably be explored by many, many scholars in different directions. So um, I'm very pleased that I took that turn, at least for this book. I'm hoping to do a little bit more in, um, in future, uh, but I will also continue to be an intellectual historian, both in my teaching and my research. So I also don't want to leave that piece behind. And this brings me just wonderfully to my next question, which, of course, reading porcelain, uh, your book, Porcelain, there are all sorts of arguments tied to the actual inherent qualities of the material as well as its production. But there was a niggling question right at the very beginning. Was there a competing subject or another material that you could have done something similar with? It's a very good question. And I'm not sure that anything else would have precisely, well, I know that nothing else would have precisely the same contours. Each material, each commodity has its own particularities as we see in you know, wonderful studies like Erica Rappaport's book about, uh, about tea um, or in some of the wonderful studies of sugar production. Um, there are just many different things that go into each of those commodities. I think that one could do something quite similar, perhaps the closest industry would be glass. Um, that is another important German Czech uh, production, those Saxon borderlands. I think there are lots of other consumer goods that we might look into. There are perhaps you know, also just peripheral sciences as well as industries that we need to look more carefully at. Uh, the one that interests me right now is, is industrial chemistry and its relationship to mining, which is a very important subject for particularly the, um, the Eastern half of the German states. But there are, I think, many um, parts of the history of consumption, particularly for the German lanes that have not been well studied, textiles, uh, uh, coal, iron, steel, those are better studied, of course, and they're major industries. Beer has been relatively well studied, but there are lots of, uh, of consumer industries that we could still investigate from artificial gems to fake flowers to saddles. Uh, my good friend Jim Brophy is writing a wonderful book about publishers in the book industry. I think when he finishes his book, we'll know a great deal more um, about the circulation of print materials through Central Europe. Um, my, another of my friends, Celia Applegate, is finishing a book about music and the Germans, which will also, I think, enhance our understanding of the, um, of the distribution of things like musical instruments and sheet music, uh, concerts and the like. So it's a good time to be investigating this field, but there's a, a lot, uh, a lot we still have to do.
Um, I remember reading in the book that you said glassmaking often was almost an entryway drug into porcelain. So maybe with just that little mention, we can get to the monograph itself. Sure. And porcelain, the history from the heart of Europe, is at once a sprawling and nearly alchemical focused study of one luxury commodity from the first European firing of porcelain in 1708 to nearly the present day. As you write, the history of porcelain is the story of the struggle between a long-surviving mercantile economy and the arrival of new forms of capitalist production and management, and the story of the transformation of an aristocratic obsession into a bourgeois necessity, and finally into an unloved white elephant. This is a long arc of a book, and we might not be able to address every part of it in the same amount of detail. But just to begin for our listeners, I'd like to try and just expand the argument in that statement of the monograph, as it seems that porcelain very uniquely maps onto several cultural and economic transitions. This is, after all, not just a book of, or of business history. Or another way to put it would be that porcelain really tracks points of tension, which themselves overlap over the centuries, and also with the composition of Germany and Central Europe, uh, also geographically at the same time. So I kept a list as I read through the book. Now, these are dichotomies, but they still help me map the progression of porcelain's production and consumption. So to begin, mercantilists and free markets, state subsidies, uh, state subsidized industry and private industry, European and national cultures, aristocratic consumers and a broader public, and this public later expands to higher and lower class identities, goods produced for domestic markets and goods intended for export, artisanal craft and industrialization, including chemistry, producers and consumers, personal and industrial products, male and female uses of porcelain, display and quotidian objects, taste and function, and copies and originals. So here porcelain would seem to be the one product able to reflect all of these changes through continental Europe and even, and I think this is where the business uh, history aspect comes in, for some of these uh, transitions. And as your book takes really wonderful pains to prove, so did the actual workforces of the porcelain industry as well, whether from the leadership down to the women decorating the heads of porcelain dolls. Now, I know this is a larger question to ask, but do you think this is generally a fair characterization of the book? That is, porcelain at the center of various transitions, or would you argue otherwise, or maybe I even missed a few uh, transitions in that list? I think that's a lovely description. Um, it was one of the revelations as I wrote this book um, how many ways in which I could match the history of porcelain to what I knew more generally about German cultural or economic history. Or um, porcelain taught me things about that history that I hadn't seen before, but which then really seemed to form interesting patterns. So I did uh, end up writing a book that I think is a, a kind of stealth German history um, or a kind of German economic history by other means. Now, I would never argue um, that it replaces those other histories. There isn't enough politics in it, for sure. Um, there isn't enough uh, focus on some of those really crucial heavy industries like steel and coal um, or agriculture. So one can't get the whole history of Germany out of this text. And of course, you can't, um, you can't see the concentration camps, you can't see um, some of the Stasi operations, there, there are serious and, um, and really crucial aspects of German history that don't come out in the history of porcelain or not, um, not directly or, or um, sufficiently, um, are sufficiently foregrounded. But one can tell a very interesting 
uh, version of German history this way. And so that's what I hope to do. And I, I do say in the introduction that I began to think of this book more and more as a history of uh, the Germans and their porcelain, uh, not so much porcelain as a commodity. So it's a, it's a history in the end um, about people, uh, at least as much as it is a history of a material object or commodity. Those sorts of things are, are wonderful and well done, particularly by museum curators and professionals who really uh, do have the kind of careful insight and knowledge um, to do very serious material culture histories. histories. This is something different. It's, it's really much more of a, of a history of the intertwining of people and the commodity, not simply the, um, the commodity in and for itself. And certainly it is not a history of porcelain as an art form. That's been done wonderfully by other people. And um, so this, I hope, is a compliment to that, not an alternative. Well, I would compliment you on the book's achievement in general and also say that aesthetics does emerge throughout the book uh, in interesting ways, again, with the Germans themselves. And here, one key term that came up again and again through the book with porcelain, and that I think might require also a little further explanation, both for our, our listeners and for people who will be reading the book, is glans. Um, can you speak a bit about this idea and really how it functions in this monograph precisely to bridge the Germans and their porcelain? Certainly. Um, one of the terms that was used very early on by a very serious collector of porcelain who then also became the owner of a mercantile manufacturing um, was, uh, was glance uh, or elegance or refinement, um, one could translate it as. And for him, that's what porcelain provided. It provided proof that your kingdom or your polity had the, the refinement, the elegance, the taste uh, to produce this luxury good. Took a very skilled uh, set of artisans to produce it. It was very expensive to produce. And in the 18th century, virtually no manufacturers made any money most of the time anyway. Um, so one made porcelain and owned porcelain really for the sake of glance, not for the sake of function. It was, uh, it was an advertisement of your refinement. And that has, to a certain extent, stuck with porcelain as a, a key quality. Porcelain is the highest grade of ceramics. It's the most difficult to make. It's very hard to fire uh, properly. Uh, glazes are very difficult to get right and to fire uh, to, to keep their, um, their true colors. So it, it, is, uh, it is not something that you you make just because it holds uh, heat well for your coffee uh, or just because uh, you think that, uh, that somehow it is um, the, the whitest possible um, ceramics. It has to be a, a, real, um, a real aesthetic choice to consume porcelain. Now, it was useful as a commodity in industrial um, settings for some of those more functional uses. Once it could be made more cheaply um, for, uh, for uh, uh, electrical um, uh, insulators, for example, for gas jets, um, even for percussion caps for, for um, mines. But it, uh, it was chiefly um, made and used as a luxury product um, that gave 
you some measure of refinement, even once it became uh, a bourgeois commodity. And you can see this in the typical usage of porcelain even today, and that is that it's, it's not what you eat off of um, for your everyday meals, it's what you pull out for Christmas or for Hanukkah or for your special occasions. Um, that is the, the, the quality that has always sort of inhered in porcelain is that it is a special um, and kind of uh, um, elegant proof of the household's taste. So in a sense, Glantz does survive all the, all the way up until the 20th century then. It does. Um, and perhaps it's one of the things that has made it difficult for it to survive in today's market is that, um, that many of us no longer spend that kind of time on special meals or, uh, or um, dinner parties that we, um, we used to. That is not where our luxury choices now reside. They go into electronic choices or cars or watches. Um, or, um, or travel, um, but for a very long time, people were willing to spend extra cash for that kind of glance. And as I think the book also shows that this was a concern really right from the beginning, as you said, with these uh, German princes in the Holy Roman Empire. And something very interesting, I think, with the book is that in some ways you take a starting point with German uh, adoptions of mercantilism as a state economic policy before you really start to get into the labor intensive work of how porcelain production grew within this model. As you write, uh, the procedures of porcelain could well have and indeed likely have emerged in a different economic context. That's my paraphrase of a, a sentence. But it's also harder to argue that the industry would have survived without mercantilism as well. Now, there's also a third component of the book in this equa equation, and that's namely the consumption of porcelain uh, in addition to the other work. And so given that porcelain was, as we've been discussing at first, and really always a luxury good of some sense, but in the very beginning for an aristocratic, aristocratic class, can you maybe share a little more about your thoughts of how mercantilism and porcelain were directly connected? And then to add to that, how mercantilism might have directly influenced the consumption of porcelain as well both in the early period and also as you take the story into the 19th century. Okay, so um, mercantilism uh, certainly uh, was the pervasive economic orientation at the time that porcelain was first produced in Europe in 1708. And when, uh, <clears throat> when the Saxons founded their first industry, they founded it in part uh, to... Um, to try to do away with East Asian imports of porcelain, which the, uh, the elector of Saxony, Augustus the Strong, had spent tremendous amount of money on in the past decades. Uh, and so the substitute industry uh, by making porcelain at home was already then thought of as being something that would, uh, would keep the dollars or as it were, the, uh, the gulden of the Saxon emperor, or elector, excuse me, in, um, in the state. Uh, he would not spend money on exports. That would also not uh, feed those hungry Dutch traders who were the ones who were chiefly importing the, um, the East Asian porcelains. So uh, in addition to providing the kind of glance proof that the 
the state was able to produce a, a good of such refinement and quality, uh, porcelain was thought of as being a good that then could, um, could keep aristocratic and royal spending within the nation. It would not go for those foreign imports, the East Asian porcelains that were so highly valued. The second calculation there was that the court would follow where the, the elector or the prince um, um, led, and they too would buy porcelain from the manufacturing, the local manufacturing. Further, the idea was that bringing manufacturers to a polity improved the tax base, improved the skill level of the population, brought good jobs to uh, places that were still at the time devastated from the after effects of the Thirty Years' War. So all of those considerations helped to incline princes to build porcelain manufactories that they uh, could thereby uh, enhance their own, uh, their own glance, but also they could improve their balance of trade as it were, and, uh, and the luxury industry um, expenditures would stay within their borders rather than uh, go for exports. And through the, the 18th century, we see patterns of many, many different tariffs um, imposed by the small states to protect their own um, industries, privileges given to those manufacturers, including monopolies on production and sales within uh, the polity, um, various kinds of trade barriers erected to try to keep out others, all of that classic mercantile practice. And that continued right through the Napoleonic era. Um, however, the, the Napoleonic continental system had a devastating impact on the whole of the, um, of the industry. And afterwards, some of the new tariff regulation, especially the Prussian 1818 tariff, opened up the markets to newer, freer trade, which really challenged the old mercantile manufacturers. They had lost their, man their monopolies also as a result of the, um, of the Napoleonic wars and uh, and legal changes. And so we have a brave new world after 1815 um, compared to previous. But even at that point, um, states who had very well-established porcelain manufacturers often did try to keep them in business by subsidizing them, by keeping them on the state budget as long as they could now as a kind of national institution artistic uh, institution for the advertisement of the nation's glance. Uh, that was certainly true in Saxony, that was true in Bavaria, that was true in Prussia. Um, and those manufacturers would survive uh, quite a long time with that kind of, um, you could call it post-mercantilist um, set of aspirations. And it's taken a very long time for that post-mercantilist um, form of support to finally uh, be eroded and, uh, and fall away. Today, the only surviving continuously state-owned manufacturing is Meisen in Saxony the first. So we're in a way back to the, the beginning. Uh, whether Meisen will continue to be a state-sponsored industry is, is a question. It keeps coming before the Saxon Landtag 
the manufacturing's in terrible financial straits. So we could in the next few years see um, that one to fall to the private sector. But it's, it's taken a long time for this evolution to occur. Um, you're calling it an evolution. It's almost not a decline, but this odd transition that you really wonderfully capture in the book that stretches across really centuries. And something here with these uh, porcelain producers caught between the demands of glands for the nation, the market, also state subsidies, justifying themselves to a finance ministry and an interior ministry. One question that came to my mind is, this is also an international market at this point. And I can't help but think that these producers of porcelain also could look to, even, uh, even after 1815, uh, Josiah Wedgwood or the manufacturer itself uh, in France, which uh, I believe was fully subsidized by the French state up until uh, at least the French Revolution. Now, up until now. All the way up until now. And so I'm wondering, did some of the figures in your books ever try and justify their own business practices or even uh, just the hardships by looking outside of Germany as well? Um, for sure. Uh, Wedgwood was a very big challenge for the Germans even before the French Revolutionary Wars. Um, Wedgwood and the English producers were a, were a very big challenge. But trying to follow Wedgwood's model was not so easy, especially for the state producers. The private producers took his lessons and you see in the early 19th century, many entrepreneurs in the ceramics segment as well as in other segments looking to England for inspiration. This is just where they find models for what kind of private industries they want to found, but they can't do things exactly in the English way. Uh, labor is very cheap in Central Europe. Machines are very expensive. So they have a hard time adopting the same kind of uh, labor practices and the same kind of, of um, uh, uh, machine uses. Uh, and they continue using manual and animal labor a lot longer than the British Isles. They're not as good as adapting, at adapting to coal, in part because wood is cheaper in Central Europe. So all of those things make the, 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 um, the business practices a little different. Uh, the market is far more segmented and, uh, and there are far more blocks in the market in Central Europe, all those tariffs, all those separate states, all those borders, all those um, exchanges of currency, that makes it harder to find a bigger market. But certainly they are they are always looking over their shoulder. I mean, you know, there's no um, way in which the story of industrial espionage is a new one. It certainly goes way back to the, certainly before the, the 18th century, people are, are spying on each other to find out what they're doing and trying to imitate practices they think are, are wise. Um, so I think that, that there, is, um, there is some desire on the part of, people to imitate the English model, but um, the circumstances make it very hard to actually do that. There's also very little uh, liquid capital in Central Europe, and that makes it hard to, to start up. Now, as far as the Sevres model is concerned, 
lots of um, German producers would have loved to follow the Sevres model, but their states didn't have pockets as deep as the French king. I mean, there was one royal manufactory all throughout France, which had a bigger uh, aristocratic market and more inclination to luxury goods. Uh, that gave Sevres uh, absolutely um, the edge from the 18th century through, you know, through the whole of its, its history. Uh, it has had um, deeper pockets to support the industry than all of the many small manufactories scattered through Central Europe. So in that way, you know, the whole geographical history of, of Germany with its 330 plus um, small states finally merging into one in 1871 versus the one big French kingdom, um, that matters very, very much to the whole economic and consumption history as well. And by the same token, even as these alternative models are floating just without beyond range of some of the German manufacturers, so are some of the technological aspects of the production as well. Um, you have a fascinating uh, part in the book about the arcanum, namely the secret recipe of European porcelain production. And I was hoping you could comment just a little further on what was particular about basically chemistry becoming industrial chemistry in these aspects. It's some of the most fascinating uh, sections of the book, and I would love to hear more. Well, historians of science have been my guide here, and they have done much more um, exacting and, and close work, um, which is, is something I'd recommend anyone um, who is interested in the subject delve into. But the, um, the chemistry part was crucial from the first. The, um, the discoverer of the arcanum or the secret recipe for porcelain was a would-be alchemist, um, an apothecary's assistant who, um, who had experience mixing different substances and experimenting with them. And he was aided by people who had mineralogical uh, experience and people who had um, various other sorts of artisanal and or um, more developed forms of scientific um, knowledge. It, the, the recipe for porcelain could not have been found by an artist. Um, the, uh, the chemistry is very complicated to get the right um, mixture of clay and, uh, and um, silicates in the clay, water, and, um, and some kind of whitening agent, whether it be feldspar or alabaster, so that you get a, uh, a recipe that can be fired at these very high temperatures and vitrify um, around, 100, uh, around 1400 degrees centigrade um, is the, the firing temperature for um, hard paste porcelain. So it took a chemist to actually make uh, porcelain that worked and that was of the same quality or near the same quality as East Asian hard paste porcelain. Then of course you needed artists and modelers, glassmakers, as you mentioned earlier, um, other people who had experience with, uh, with using high heat temperatures and uh, getting the kilns to the right temperature. It took lots of those different people working together to modify the designs, to add new features, to perfect the use of glaze, to get under glaze paints to work. So this was not a discovery that one person really um, is responsible for. There were, uh, from the beginning, many people who contributed to it 
and many different pieces that had to come together before you got really what we know of as the kind of classic uh, 18th century uh, porcelains. And something interesting here for me and that you show wonderfully in the book is even as this was a collective endeavor at the local level, it started in a sense to enter a national level and even eventually a European level in that speaking of technology transfers, or as you really very uh, sharply put it, all the firms spent so much time and effort copying one another that you suggest that in a sense, a European taste of some kind of nebulous form actually started to come into being. Uh, perhaps it has something to do with how far you could actually distinguish different porcelain uh, grades or qualities at this time. And so I wanted to ask you about this as well, uh, whether you could argue about a sort of taste, especially as it becomes historicized, as, as you later argue, that is with almost a, a retrograde nostalgia for older porcelain, could it also be mapped in a certain sense onto some of the classes coming into sharper focus throughout Europe in the 19th century? And then maybe a follow-up question would be whether the same European, specifically European taste for porcelain, even survives into the present day, if you think. Yeah, excellent and, um, and tricky question. So I discovered at a certain point in this process, something that I was seeing in other industries, and that is um, a way in which taste moved in the 18th century, generally from Italy to France to Central Europe. Um, and uh, perhaps um, the Brits came in at the same times as, as the French, um, but, um, but Central Europe kind of cultivates some of those same tastes later. Um, and I think this has to do with the circulation of the aristocracy. The Grand Tour has a lot to do with it. And also with a just widening market for luxury goods that begin to travel more quickly uh, and, uh, and various kinds of publications, including journals that begin to illustrate common styles or fashions or, um, or to advertise those in a certain way. <coughs> Excuse me. And I think that, that um, Porcelain is one of the first to show this uh, circulation, um, in part because of the just rampant copying um, from one another of anything new, of new designs, of artists that seem to offer something um, that, uh, that uh, piques the taste of the, um, the buying public, which is chiefly aristocrats at the time. And, um, and you do begin to see the emergence of a really common set of, of uh, characteristics in design, uh, Rococo, um, and then the very sharp and very swift um, move to neoclassical styles by the 1780s. Um, and you can see this in the ways in which uh, warehouses fill up with old fashioned goods that go out of style and can't be sold at uh, full price anymore. Um, the, the ways in which manufacturers try to steal each other's uh, designers and craftsmen in order to bring that taste uh, to the, the manufacturing. Uh, that begins to be a, a more and more sort of uh, pronounced fashion cycle by the end of the century. And it's fascinating to see it develop but it certainly uh, doesn't mean that there aren't also more local tastes um, and designs or pieces that appeal to, to certain people or commissions 
um, that uh, that take manufacturers into other um, into other runs of production in order to please a certain uh, kind of consumer. Um, and it's also the case that some manufacturers lag or refuse to keep up with the styles um, often to their cost. And they do begin to learn that it produces often resentment on the part of artists who don't want to um, reply to the market, but believe they are the ones who should be governing taste. But increasingly, as those uh, ministers of finance play a bigger and bigger role in the budgets and the oversight of the manufacturers, uh, the, the bottom line sales become more and more important and manufacturers are forced to produce um, things that will sell and are fashionable in some way. Now you ask about class stratification and that certainly becomes important by the 19th century. You begin to see versions of this in the 18th uh, as manufacturers often, porcelain manufacturers often had sister uh, plants that produce faience or even majolica, that's lower cost ceramics in order to to buttress their bottom line. Actually, in a way, it's like the fashion industries of today that have a runway um, set of fashions, and then they have an ordinary folks um, set of fashions. You could think of this in terms of, um, you know, I don't know, Gucci or uh, or other brands which um, which will have a very high end, and then uh, and then supplement the costs of making those very high end goods with mass sales of, of cheaper ones. That's already going on in the 18th century, but it's more pronounced in the 19th. As more consumers enter the market, as prices fall relative to other goods, and as more and more middle-class people begin to fill their houses with porcelain objects of various kinds, now more utilitarian sorts of things, cups and saucers, vases, uh, wash basins and the like, pipes. So reading the book, I should confess that the phrases supply side aesthetics and trickle down aesthetics came to mind in terms of which way were the designs actually coming from. And this is something interesting about the book. And as you say, it's not a history of design. It's not an art history. It's almost adjacent to it. I want to return to the kind of almost, you might say the ghost of the artist as uh, the porcelain industry progresses through the 19th century. But I'd like you to also just address very briefly, perhaps, the actual uh, creation of porcelain for export. So you have fascinating examples of pieces that were made to be uh, marketed to Turkish customers, to Americans. And also throughout the book, you show how quickly exports become an essential part of the balancing of accounts for these firms. So not to say necessarily that tastes were exported, but porcelain was. So Certainly. any thoughts on this? Certainly. So um, let me first say something about exports and then about artists. Um, certainly part of the mercantile ideal was always export, that you would make, um, you would make some money with your manufacturing, not only by keeping sales within uh, the, uh, the polity, but also by selling to other people's uh, aristocracies. That didn't work out so well for many manufacturers, but some of them managed to do that. And that was um, a very great boon to their bottom line, especially when the, the buying public, let's say, you know, within 
um, the circle of one of the small states of, uh, of Saxony uh, was not able to purchase very much or any porcelain. Uh, some of those manufacturers began to sell Turkish cups designed specifically for the, um, for the Turkish market. Um, there were also uh, many pieces of porcelain exported to the New World, to South America, uh, as well as to, uh, to the US South and to the Caribbean. Um, that's particularly a 19th century story, which could be followed up in various interesting ways. Uh, but the story of exports then really heats up in the late 19th century as the North American market really opens up and German exports begin to flood in, uh, perhaps with German emigres, but also with just the general enrichment of the American population and perhaps its, uh, its movement from a frontier culture to a, um, a culture that wanted to cultivate its own glance. In any event, uh, then exports become crucial for the whole of the German industry. Uh, and that becomes a very important source of revenue uh, right down to the, the Nazi period. Uh, after the Second World War, the export trade is crucial, absolutely crucial to the survival of Meisen beyond the Iron Curtain. Uh, they, uh, they produce almost exclusively for Western European sales in hard currency. And that's a crucial reason for keeping the manufacturing open um, and for its production and for its survival. Um, even as a, an old aristocratic uh, industry in a socialist state. So exports are, are certainly crucial part of uh, the whole package. Now, as far as artists are concerned, in the 18th century, those artisans who stood at the top of the manufacturers, the master painters, the master formers, were very well paid and very well regarded. After 1815, they began to really lose their status and their pay fell relatively steeply. Um, they began to be uh, replaced by cheaper painters or by transfer printing, by various kinds of new small technologies. And uh, none of that was very pleasing to the artists who wanted to maintain an old status um, identity as creators of, of art. And one sees this actually more broadly um, in the decorative arts as they become more and more um, subordinated to high and fine arts such as painting or sculpture, for example, which are now more and more clearly differentiated from mere decorative arts. The, um, the consequence of this is in part that the manufacturers uh, increasingly do produce things that are identicals, although many of them can be um, commissioned still or made, uh, made uh, personal by adding different sorts of um, designs or, uh, or inscriptions. Um, but also the manufacturers increasingly um, uh, don't um, try to do too much lavish innovation to get too ahead of the market with the exception of um, what they produce for the great exhibitions which become the places to show off your artistic uh, genius. Uh, but those are almost always small runs of objects, special objects that are shown there, not the everyday kinds of, of 
products that are produced in the manufacturing itself. And a wider and wider gap begins to emerge between what's displayed at the exhibition and what's actually sold by the manufacturers. That was a discovery I made in the course of this, this um, research that I had not anticipated, but um, I found it very interesting and it runs right through the 20th century, this uh, further and further differentiation between a kind of high art that the manufacturing, particularly the, the state manufacturers continue to produce to keep themselves um, in the category of the fine arts or at least the high decorative arts and the, the general run of products that they produce to keep themselves solvent in the market. And here, I think something that's really fascinating in your exploration of the Biedermeier period in the 19th century is, if I'm reading it right, that there's actually a meeting of the market that's technologically possible in such a way that almost a, an artist, artist with taste almost emerges. And so we have this kind of artist, artisan-less taste and also the ability to serve an eclectic uh, diversity of goods which allows the public in turn to also craft different identities, which you go into wonderful depth in. And here I, again, tried to almost kind of keep a list of what are some of the values that are being basically imposed by the market on the actual producers against the, the desires of your own artists and critics like Gottfried Semper, who you mentioned. I came up with function, which is also a value that is actually a design value of uh, industrial uses of porcelain, which you go into, especially with bathrooms. Then there's a gemütlich spite, which I guess you could translate as just kind of homeliness, comfort. The 19th century Hegel, maybe you can correct me on that. And then also some, a really fascinating phenomena that you discuss of almost a historicized classicism, or this odd phenomena of the market itself demanding older styled wares. And this seems to be in some sense a, a longer, not a history of design, but a longer history of 19th century consumption. I, yeah, I would hope that it that it is. Um, I, that was another discovery I made uh, the um, the importance of those historicized forms and their sales from the 1820s forward, especially for Meisen, uh, but also for uh, some of the other manufacturers. That was something the manufacturers did not want to do. The artists resisted. They felt it was copying. It wasn't going forward. It was going backward. It was sort of um, petrifying the manufacturing in its own history. And of course that was the case. But the 18th century's porcelain designers were geniuses, no question about that, many of them. And the, something about the, the, the style um, made in the mid 18th century greatly appealed to um, Biedermeier consumers. And that has made those um, permanent products down to today, the, the Vieux Sevres or the Altmeissen styles, you can still find in those catalogs today because um, that continues to be a strong taste among consumers is that retroactive uh, kind of, of taste, mostly classicism, um, well, what I would call soft Baroque classicism or Rococo classicism, not strict um, uh, Prussian neoclassicism. In any event, yeah, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. In any event, um, the, the, um, the Biedermeier uh, buyers 
really did have a, a great deal of power over the manufacturers in, in that period between the 1820s and 40s, when you think about it. They, um, the manufacturers had been mostly cut off from their subsidies. Uh, they were not enjoying the kinds of commissions they had in the, the 18th century. And if they were going to survive, they needed to please consumers and please a new kind of consumer, not just the older aristocracy. And that was a rough transition, um, not easy for the, the manufacturers to answer to those tastes, but, um, but it shows you something about the Biedermar era that we perhaps hadn't taken seriously enough. And that is that, that um, there were uh, consumers demanding um, various kinds of, um, of product, products, consumer products that uh, hadn't been made before or seen before or uh, in their own um, tastes, whether or not the aristocracy or the artists like that or not. And you see in the book market, the same kind of proliferation of tastes and publishers responding to that, uh, that eclectic uh, kind of demand. Um, I think we have too long treated Biedermeyer consumers as uh, being either slightly silly or all sort of slaves of the old aristocracy. And I think it's a much richer world that deserves our, our more careful attention. And then to ask perhaps some, um, well, to put forth a slightly wrong construction in the sense to have you correct or play with, did that Biedermeyer world of consumption survive uh, the Nazi uh, regime, which follows pretty close on the heels in your book? Um, to or some extent, funny. yeah, it's a it's it's an interesting question. Uh, I think that that many of the pieces of the twentieth century story that I tell all too quickly really need more investigation. They are um, they are topics of of interest, I think, to many people because they move in different uh, directions. Um, but I hope that that more more people will investigate these topics in greater detail. But I can say that that there was, in some sense, a, uh, a reinvestment in some of that gemutlichkeit. Um, but there was also a very strong um, embrace of the kind of functionalism of even the, the modernist designers of uh, people associated with the Wiener Werkstätte, for example. Um, this is something Paul Betts shows very nicely in his book called The Authority of Everyday Objects. Uh, and those functional designs, cheap, mass producible, but slick and elegant, uh, did appeal to many of the Nazis' needs and desires. Um, they, were, uh, they were easy to produce en masse and the, the porcelain industries in the Nazi period enjoyed many commissions from let's say the labor uh, ministry or uh, or other um, state um, state organizations ordering just masses of cafeteria ware, shall we say, or uh, or um, materials for the um, for the Luftwaffe. So one has to look at those state commissions and their taste alongside the private um, the private consumption of the period. It's been shown, I think, to my, um, to my satisfaction that the Nazi period uh, really contained and constrained personal consumption 
um, in many of it, the, um, the consumer industries, uh, people really did not have very much disposable income at all, still even when full employment was reached. And so their, their, um, their expenditures were quite minor for the most part, um, but, uh, but household goods did seem to form um, an important part of what was there to be consumed. And it seems that those consumers went for things that were very functional and perhaps uh, more modern than, uh, than, uh, than Gemutlich. Um, the Prussians, uh, that is the Nazis, once they settled into a kind of Prussian mentality, um, celebrated uh, a kind of neoclassicism in some of their works, the Olympia Stadium being the most obvious, but some of their commissioned porcelains were very much of the neoclassical variety. But we know that Hitler himself um, had a, had a uh, red dragon Meisen set that he, uh, he loved. So there are, again, a kind of proliferation of different tastes. Um, but I would say that um, in a lot of ways, the, the Nazi period continues the Weimar period more than it, than it goes back to the Biedermeier era. Um, that's just thinking off the top of my head to that question. And I think the book does answer that in the survival of the eclecticism, the diversity of taste, and even what you mentioned of just absolutely huge catalogs of the producers in terms of the products they offer. Right. And there, that might bring us to the last part of the book, which is in many ways tragic. Is there an end to porcelain, the porcelain industry in Germany and maybe the rest of the world? And there, a question returning to the historization, the desire for old goods, maybe an open question to start to draw our interview to a close is Is porcelain, in a sense, trapped by its history, be it mercantile, be it trapped by catering to the taste of a public that may or may not be there any longer? Is that almost a motivating force now behind porcelain, or at least in the post-war period? That's a very insightful thought. Uh, and it strikes me as, as correct. Uh, porcelain is so deeply associated with the past, with, um, with those 18th century courts um, and with, uh, with grandmotherly things. Um, it's connected to home in a very deep way through middle-class cultures that celebrated holidays at home. But um, that may have be a very outdated conception of home uh, nowadays. Um, and I think that uh, the new mobility of many people in the world, uh, the new eating habits that we um, enjoy, much more eclectic in and of themselves, much more international, um, our throwaway culture, um, all of those things are really stacked against porcelain making. I'm not sure it's going to survive. It's possible it could be reinvented. It's possible the next generation will have a very different attitude towards these things. Um, it's certainly the case that porcelain is a lot uh, more likely to, to survive and endure than plastic or um, uh, or even stoneware and earthenware, which crack more easily. So perhaps from a conservationist point of view, there will be an argument for porcelain, but I think um, the next generation will have to, to save porcelain by reinventing its uses and its meanings. 
I think the, the older forms are indeed trapped by history, as you suggest, and, and not likely to return. Now, that said, I think uh, porcelain in East Asia is a different story, um, perhaps, and it would take another historian of East Asia to really explore that story more fully. Uh, there are still certainly uh, porcelain producers there, though I understand they too are facing considerable challenges from some of the same directions. Well, speaking of further stories to tell, I would love to continue this interview much longer, but perhaps to just close, are there any further avenues, maybe not necessarily for porcelain studies, that you would like to see explored by other specialists, and perhaps any history books in general that have impressed you, monographs or articles? Well, there's so many, and I, um, I am a great fan of many works in different fields. I would say that um, I really do believe that the time has come for us to do some more work on the history of consumption uh, in the German states, and I would love us to do some more fusing of, uh, of different branches of history, business history and history of science, for example, um, history of, of the decorative arts, uh, all of those things belong together and have much to tell each other. That would, I think, be very, very constructive. And I think there are many archives that we have left untapped, including museum archives, uh, local archives, business archives of various kinds that we could also find stories in. And um, I am very, uh, very enthusiastic about the future prospects for doing some of this work and for expanding, and I think making more concrete some of the cultural history that we've done in the past with these new sources and, uh, and also with our attention um, turned perhaps more directly to the, the materials and to the economic inputs that um, were essential in making culture actually happen. So those are the things I think I would, um, I would plump for and I really hope that we can have another conversation soon and also that um, we can widen the ambit and talk to some more scholars who, who work on, um, on related fields. It's an exciting time to be a historian. So I'm very pleased to be part of this conversation. And on that note, I can warmly recommend the book as a model for the kind of history you're calling for crossing different fields in different regions as well. And with that, Professor Marchand, I'll thank you very much for your time today in discussing this wonderful book. And we're all looking forward to seeing what you write next as well. Thanks so much, John. It's been a great pleasure.